Support for TPR comes from Texas A&M San Antonio, offering an 11-month MBA program featuring paid internships and a study abroad program. Books included. More at tamusa.edu slash MBA. Dorothy Robinson was one of the last people in Palestine, Texas, to learn that her husband, Frank, was dead. Her first clue that something was terribly wrong was when her plane was landing in Tyler, the closest commercial airport to Palestine. And when I got to Tyler, I could always see him standing out because the plane was so small, it was like you're sitting in a car. And I didn't see him. And when I got out, and my sister and her husband and a friend and his daughter were standing there. That was and I said, where is Frank? And my sister just threw her arms out like that. She didn't say anything. But the friend's daughter said, dead. And I said, car wreck? She said, no, somebody killed him. And uh, I said, well, get my luggage. I'm ready. And uh, they got my luggage. This is The Ghost of Frank J. Robinson from Texas Public Radio. Episode 3, The Weight of Evidence. I'm David Martin Davies. Frank J. Robinson was a civil rights advocate in East Texas. When he was 74, he died under mysterious circumstances in 1976. I'm trying to figure out what happened. Thanks for coming along with me. In the days leading to Frank's death, Dorothy was out of town for a couple of education conferences. She was the chairperson for the Governor's Advisory Council for Technical Vocational Education. The first conference was in San Antonio. The other was in Minneapolis. The week before his death, Frank drove Dorothy to the Tyler Airport. When we were on the way to the car, I, I was going to the car, and he stopped to pass in the back door. And he looked, he said, you know, you're still a pretty good-looking old woman. And I said, boy, come on here. I've got to catch an early flight. And when we went to Tyler, and I can't remember to this day if I kissed him goodbye. I imagine I did because it was a habit of doing it. But I can't remember, but the last time I saw him, I had gotten on the little plane, it was a small plane, and I saw him talking to another man as he was going to his car stop, and that was the last time I saw him. I called him uh, from San Antonio on Saturday night, and of course he had my schedule and where I was to stay, but I reminded him again that I was going to Minneapolis and I would be back uh, Thursday, I think it was. And I called him Sunday afternoon after I got to Minneapolis. And he said, we've had a little cold snap and I can't find my long underwear. And I said, well, it's not that cold, is it? He said, well, I'd be comfortable in it. And I told him what drawer it was in. He said, well, I looked in there and I, I said, you just didn't dig deep enough in the drawer. I said, but you won't freeze to death till I get there. I said, I'll be there. I think it was Thursday. I was told him I'd be here. And, uh, he's, he's, and I said, uh, my plane will land it. 10 o'clock or whatever, and he repeated the time. And I think that was the last, I know the last conversation we had, probably the last thing I heard him say, except goodbye. Remember, Frank J. Robinson died in 1976. This was a time before our constant connectivity. That's why Dorothy was in the dark about Frank's death. There were no cell phones, no text messaging, no email. Pagers or beepers wouldn't become popular until the 1980s. And Frank's death did make the news, but this wasn't Walter Cronkite-style big TV network news. Outside of Texas, it was back of the newspaper, three inches of copy news. Also, Dorothy's arrival was on the same day that Frank's dead body was discovered on the floor of the garage, Thursday, October 14th. 
So there really was no way for Dorothy to know before her plane touched down what was waiting for her in Palestine and back at her home. When I came, uh, well, naturally had removed his body and uh, had even uh, cleaned up the garage and everything. And they, the police were criticized later for having that cleaned up so soon because they said they didn't have, had, didn't have time to, they did it before they had right, enough the time to do a good uh -huh. examination. Uh -huh. So that was about it. Uh, the police were all around asking questions and that kind of thing. Uh, and at first, the, the chief had told some of the people, including Timothy Smith, it was a clear case of homicide. Timothy Smith was a close associate of Frank J. Robinson. The two with Rodney Howard were the plaintiffs in their victorious landmark voting rights case fighting anti-black gerrymandering in Anderson County. But before the week was gone, the chief was saying suicide. And uh, the, the governor sent a special investigator down. Uh, we had, we had uh, some cooperation from, from Austin, and, uh, but m much of it, I'm sure, was just swept under the, under the rug. It was, it was February before I even got a, a death certificate. The death certificate got lost, the records got lost, something happened and something happened. And then when I did get the death certificate and I had to sign but not for it, that was when I really broke down because it said, death from a self-inflicted massive, massive wound. And I knew Frank Robinson did not kill himself. I cried like a baby. When Dorothy arrived back at her home, the police were waiting for her with questions. And after I came that afternoon, the evening I came in, some of his brain was still on the wall. And uh, I, a man reached up to one of the officials and, and I said, what is that? And he said, you would ask that, wouldn't you? you. But all told, they were, they were as solicitous to me, I guess, as they could be. But it was definitely a cover-up deal. The biggest question that Police Chief Kenneth Barry had for Dorothy was about the shotgun that was either next to Frank or across his left leg. There is some inconsistency about the position of the gun when the body was discovered. But what Barry wanted to know from Dorothy, did Frank own that shotgun? Had she seen it before? And the, the shotgun, uh, Frank had his father's shotgun, but he, it was just a keepsake. He didn't use it. But that shotgun was in the was kept in a closet in my garage. I haven't seen that shotgun since. But I don't. But I don't think Frank's arm was long enough to shoot himself with a shotgun. This is a murky area. The shotgun, who owned it, who had access to it, these are central questions in puzzling out if Frank died by his own hand or if it was murder. According to newspaper reports, Dorothy told police that she didn't recognize the shotgun at first. She was quoted in a UPI wire story saying she wasn't sure that Frank actually owned a shotgun, and police went to work establishing that, yes, it was indeed Frank's shotgun. The next day, the police chief said a friend of Robinson's identified that shotgun as Frank's based on photographs from the crime scene. Barry was quoted in the Dallas Morning News story saying, he took and looked at the pictures and described it. He knew things about the gun and could describe it. 
Attempts by the Bureau of Alcohol, Tobacco, and Firearms to trace ownership of the gun failed because it was too old. Dorothy was also then quoted saying that Frank did own a shotgun and, quote, it was an old keepsake he inherited from his daddy. She thought it was too old and it was inoperable. It was a 12-gauge double-barrel Ranger shotgun. The barrel had been sawed off a bit, but not by much. It was still a legal 22 inches long. Dorothy said the shotgun was kept in a closet in the garage along with gardening equipment and tools. Frank was a master gardener and grew bountiful harvests of fruits and vegetables. He would share his crops with his neighbors. Many would come over and had free access to his gardening gear, including a shotgun. It was not secure. Those kids come over and say, I want to borrow Mr. Robson's axe. And I said, do you know it? Yes, ma'am, I know. And they could go right to the garage and get whatever they want. And his father's gun stayed in the closet out in the garage. And I haven't seen that gun. So I think they, whatever gun they found at his body, I never saw it. I mean, and they, I didn't even get his clothes back. In fact, I didn't want his clothes. If they were bloody and all, I didn't, I didn't want his clothes. Uh, so whatever gun was used, I'm sure it wasn't his gun. And it, but his gun is gone. Investigators didn't find any usable fingerprints on the shotgun. How is it that a shotgun that Robinson owned for many years didn't have his own fingerprints on it, unless someone else had used that shotgun and then wiped it down afterwards? We'll be right back. Support for TPR comes from Texas A&M San Antonio, now offering multiple graduate programs like the 11-month MBA, the fully online Master of Science in Criminology and Criminal Justice, and many more. Learn more at becomeajaguar.com. Mike Cox was a newspaper reporter at the time for the Austin American Statesman and was sent to Palestine to cover the Frank J. Robinson death story. My involvement in it came on October 19th of 76. Uh, at that time, I was sort of a determined to be player coach on the American Statesman. Uh, two nights a week, I was a, a night city editor in charge of the, what went into the morning paper for two days a week. And then for three days a week, I was just sort of a, to kind of do what I wanted to as a reporter. I did a lot of investigative reporting and whatever either needed covering or something that I came up with that I wanted to cover. Some more background on Cox. After he was a newspaper reporter, he went to work for the Texas Department of Public Safety. That's the state police. He was their longtime spokesperson and communications manager. He has also written about 35 nonfiction books. Many of them are histories about the Texas Rangers. And he's the president of the Texas Institute of Letters. When I called him up to ask him about this story that he had reported on, he was already going through his personal records and he had his notes available, so he has a lot of information at his fingertips. And I would say that Cox is an institutionalist. I mean, I do think that Mike Cox is a straight shooter, but he's from an era where the press automatically gave the police a large benefit of the doubt, much more so than today. So the first thing that Cox covered in the Robinson case was a press conference called by a group of black political leaders calling for a full investigation into Frank J. Robinson's death. A press conference was called by the uh, Texas chapter of the National Black Political Assembly. 
Dr. John Warfield, who at that time was uh, with the University of Texas Afro-American Studies Department. They had a press conference, and they are the ones who first, uh, at least publicly, suggested uh, statewide that Robinson's death had been a, uh, an assassination, and uh, I covered the uh, covered that uh, press conference, and uh, uh, it was a page one story uh, in that afternoon's paper. I can't tell from this uh, clipping whether it was page one, but I think it ran uh, over the masthead uh, that afternoon. The National Black Political Assembly was an effort in the 1970s to create a political party for black Americans independent of the two major parties. They saw that the American political system was failing black Americans, and they figured that the only way to address their particular problems was to transition to independent black politics. And John Warfield was a powerful force for social justice in Texas. He taught at UT Austin for 26 years and was the director for the Center for African and African-American Studies. It now bears his name as the John L. Warfield Center for African and African-American Studies. Warfield and State Representative Paul Ragsdale, a Dallas Democrat, held that press conference and called Robinson's death a Ku Klux Klan-style assassination. There was no evidence that the Klan was involved with Robinson's death, other than that Robinson was a black man who was successfully empowering black voters in East Texas, and he died under mysterious conditions. And this was East Texas, where there is a history of KKK activity. So all Warfield and Ragsdale had to go on was their suspicion. Back to Mike Cox. And I, I can't remember if it was the next day or that evening I left for Palestine to go and see what I could, uh, could dig up. Drove there and got a hotel, hotel room and uh, stayed there for uh, several days. I, I can't remember exactly how many days I covered the funeral. At least I have a copy of the funeral program. I, I know the death had occurred you know, prior to this point. I was not in Palestine immediately after the, the death. I wrote, a, I guess before I left town, I wrote a, a, a follow-up story, you know, kind of a, a rewrite for the morning uh, American statesman that was published on October 20th. So the headline says, Conspiracy Cited in Playing, and then above that it says, uh, Blacks, and then it's in quote, Assassination. And uh, I'll just read to you the lead of the paragraph, because it, or the lead paragraph, because it, it figures into what I'm going to tell you next. As Governor Dolph Briscoe and, and Secretary of State Mark White helped create the climate that led to the shotgun death of a black political activist in Palestine, one of the dead man's colleagues charged accused him. And then uh, uh, after that, it was pretty much a, a rewrite of, the, of, of what came out of the press conference. Later that morning, it, like I said, it ran, it ran on the morning of October 20th, and and uh, uh, I was still in my hotel room in Palestine, and uh, the phone rang in my room, and uh, I answered it, and it was uh, it was Mark White, future governor Mark White, who at that time was uh, uh, Secretary of State in Texas, and he proceeded to uh, test me out thoroughly uh, for that story, and I kept saying, well. Uh, Hey, you know, I was just 
I'm just quoting what the guy said, you know, that's not me saying that, that you had a, uh, that you were involved in a conspiracy. I'm, I'm quoting the guy, but he was, you know, it was kind of a kill the messenger sort of thing. He was uh, heavily been out of shape by it. Later on, I had uh, uh, very pleasant dealings with him on several occasions after he was elected uh, governor. So I, I don't know if he got about it. It never came up between us again, but he sure chewed me out. Uh, that morning, and so I called the paper to, to say, hey, uh, my wife just called to chew me out. And they said, oh, yeah, we know. We gave him your number. So, <laughs> uh, anyway, there was that. It is interesting that White tracked down Cox and started yelling at him, berating him for his coverage of the Robinson death. That's intimidation of the press. That should be out of bounds. I doubt it shook Cox or influenced his coverage. But that did happen. But when I was in town in Palestine, I see by my notes that one of the first things I did was make a list of uh, people I wanted to talk to, of the players in town. One of the main people, of course, I spent time with was the chief of police, Kenneth Berry. You know, as you can probably tell from reading the, the clippings, you know, early on, Barry said that, well, yeah, it, 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 it looked like it could be a murder. I mean, he was, uh, he didn't immediately uh, mention suicide. You know, my next story, I guess, um, you know, made it look a bit more like a, like a murder. Uh, I, I think I didn't do another story after that until I did a spot story out of, out, out of Palestine that ran on, on the morning of October 21. Well, actually, he must have—he must have changed his mind. I think—I think early on he was quoted uh, by other reporters as saying that it might be a homicide. But looking here at the story that I did uh, for the October 21 morning paper, uh, which meant that I filed it that that night of the 20th, uh, the lead says, "Please, Steve Kenneth Barry." said here Wednesday, he has run out of leads in the shotgun death of civil rights activist Frank Perry Robinson and believes the case is possibly a suicide. He took me out to the to the house. In fact, I made a drawing of the of the garage where the where the body was found. Uh, he was he was killed with a, a double barrel, an antique double barrel 12 gauge shotgun. Uh, literally, the, the, the top of his head was was blown off by uh, a single blast. Problem was, uh, they found three empty shells at the scene, which of course sounds bad and, and you know, makes it sound like a homicide. But you know, there are a lot of factors there. The shotgun belonged to him. He had taken off his glasses, I remember, which is consistent with suicide. They believed that he had been shot. Sitting down, which is consistent with suicide. They tested for any kind of nitrate on his hand, uh, but I found somewhere in my notes where a Texas Ranger told me that uh, in that kind of case, it wasn't that sort of instance, it wasn't unusual for there not to be nitrate. And they found uh, they found some shotgun pellet marks. I think they found one on the car, uh, and then they found some on a tractor nearby. And so what they concluded was that uh, for whatever reason, he had fired uh, two rounds with the shotgun and then uh, 
fired the third time uh, that took his life. Uh, the Texas Rangers looked into it, the FBI looked into it, and then uh, local JP had a, a an actual coroner's hearing, which doesn't happen that often, but now, this happened after I came back and uh, back to Austin. Uh, this was in November. But the jury uh, concluded that it was a suicide. And there were four shotgun shells found, not just the three. The fourth one was found outside the home along the fence line. And remember those boys playing football. They said they heard four shotgun blasts, so that matches. There are questions about the nitrate contamination on Robinson's hands and on his body. Consider, Robinson had to have fired that shotgun four times. And also, he had to open up the barrel twice to reload because police also found in a shotgun a spent shell and an unfired shell. So to hear four shots, to have four shots fired, that would have meant having to open up that shotgun twice, break it open at the hinge, remove by hand the fired shells, and then replace them with new live rounds. All of that, and not get nitrate on your body? That seems unrealistic. I want to go back to Dorothy Robinson and let you hear what she has to say about those kids, about those shotgun shells, and more. At the, at the inquest, the kids said they saw a a truck leave here with a man with a yellow shirt. They saw a man running down the fence row and they heard four shots. The police found three uh, uh, shotgun shells immediately and they found the fourth one down close to the fence that separates my property from the school property. The, uh, the prosecuting attorney uh, said that uh, the kids probably thought they saw something. And furthermore, uh, the kids were too far away to know what color a person's shirt was. And uh, my neighbor was placed on the stand, and she said that she had, the, the uh, man that did the autopsy said Frank hadn't had anything to eat in 24 hours. Well, my sister had been here visiting, and she brought him some stew. And she said, he said it was the best stew she ever, he'd ever eaten. And her husband tried to get Frank to go home with him. And Will said he doesn't know to this day why he wanted Frank to go home with him. And say so Frank said, man, I got too much to do, I can't go home with him. And, but my neighbor who lived right over here brought Frank dinner and uh, within this 24-hour period. So that had to be a mistake. That, but when my neighbor went on the stand, and testified that Frank had eaten because she brought him food. The prosecuting attorney said she lied. Those are the very words, she lied. And uh, that was very painful to me and also for the neighbor. In fact, the neighbor wanted to get up and dispute him when <laughs> you just said that. But uh, that, was, that was just about the, the, the gist of it. The inquest lasted two days. And it was supposed to be said to have been one of the longest inquests that's ever been held or something. You could say, I had a new car in the garage, and uh, the, the shots from the, the shell just, just had little pock marks all on the front fender of my car. 
and they, they for a long while, if you open the door or shake anything out there, the sh shots would fall off the wall. The car was a 1976 red Oldsmobile. Can you imagine what it must have been like to continue driving the same car that was shot up in the death of your spouse and being constantly reminded of those shotgun blasts every time you got in or out of your car? And does it make sense that Frank would have shot at Dorothy's new car? Frank took good care of his cars. And why four shots? If you want to kill, kill yourself, you don't need but one. But the kids had counted correctly. They said they heard four shots, and the, the police finally found four shells. Just why like. would you shoot down by the fence road? I guess the, I don't know, but that's that's uh, about the, the gruesome part of it. Dorothy figured the four shots were the result of a struggle and a short chase that Frank was fighting for his life when he was killed. Also, that other voice that you're hearing is Cherry Wolf. She was recording this interview with Dorothy Robinson for an oral history for the UTSA Institute of Texan Cultures. This was recorded on July 28, 1994. And you can hear in her voice that she is shocked by what Dorothy is telling her. I mean, it seems so clear when, when you're, I mean, it just seems like that, you know, how could you cover up something like that? Or how could you concoct a story that obviously well, if you got enough people cooperating with you, it's very easy well, to do. But if you had it represented from the governor's office, and I mean, do you think he was in on it? Or? No, I think that, no, I think that, I think the local, I think the local police, and, and I don't think they were in it in the beginning because the chief first said homicide. I think somebody told him what to say to change his story, because the man who conducted the autopsy said homicide. But when he got on the stand, he said, suicide. So I think, I think the, the final testimonies were bought. That's what I think. And uh, I'm pretty sure that's what happened. So the gun wasn't here? Um, I haven't seen that gun since. But, but Frank wasn't shot with his own gun. Because that old gun wasn't even used, on it. Uh, but he was shot with a shotgun. As for Mike Cox, he doesn't see that there was a struggle or a chase or even a murder. It's not unusual for family and friends of somebody who takes their own life to just not be able to comprehend that that person could do that. And they start saying, well, you know, it must have been a murder. I mean, I, I covered a fair number of cases like that over the years. And occasionally on Dateline on TV, you see a case where somebody killed somebody and tried to make it look like a suicide. But you know, I don't know what was statistics are, but in my case as a reporter, I don't recall ever uh, writing about a case where uh, you know, somebody successfully, or where somebody killed somebody and, and succeeded in making it look like a suicide. But Cox wrote a story for the Austin American Statesman that ran in the October 24th issue with the grabber of a headline, Plenty of Suspects, If It Was a Murder. Uh, and indeed, you know, there, there was, you know, talk in town and, and some in town said that there could, well, there might be some people who didn't like him, uh, uh, either, uh, either either white people who didn't like him, or even uh, even some black people who didn't like him. But uh, anyway, uh, that that 
almost ended my involvement in it. Uh, the last story I wrote about it was uh, appeared on, on November 28th of, uh, that's like a year later. This is dated October, uh, November 28th of 77, unless they, I, I think they stamped it down uh, because it said that uh, uh, the uh, reward that had been offered for the killer uh, was actually just a, a publicity stunt. And that was based on, uh, you know, I talked to you about that, that was from the, uh, the, uh, the police chief said that. Uh, the, the, we've said, Calcium Police Chief Kenneth Berry said Sunday, a reward that was being offered for information concerning the shotgun death. Oh yeah, it was last year, the last year of an East Texas black politician. The political activist is just a quote publicity stunt. And that was my last last involvement in the case uh, until I heard from you. It was a publicity stunt. I mean, aren't all rewards a publicity stunt? Well, I guess that's true. But again, that's that's his words, not my words. That was that was the police chief saying that. Uh, I'm looking at his quote. He said, "Quote: There is no new evidence." Barry said, "They are just making a lot of waves." I feel like my boys. Uh, and he's referring referring to his officers, did a hell of a job investigating that case. They left no stones unturned. And the next paragraph said, Barry said he requested the Federal Bureau of Investigation to assist in the case, but that the FBI said they had found no grounds for the FBI to intervene. You know, the guy was 74 years old. He'd been in the hospital not too long before his death. And I think I said in one of my stories, Someone told me that he was concerned that he might have cancer. During Frank's autopsy, the medical examiner testified that he found no signs of cancer or any other serious lethal ailments that would have justified suicide. Frank did have some stomach trouble, probably from stress from his civil rights work and the threats on his life, so he had to stop eating barbecue. Frank was a champion meat smoker along with his other talents. I would think one doesn't kill oneself over the lack of barbecue, not even in Texas. There were no fingerprints on the shotgun. Do you know anything about that? Yes, I, I, I saw that in my notes. But again, the issue was it was his shotgun. If somebody killed him, so they would have had to gone there to his house, you know, somehow found that shotgun, overpowered him, forced him to sit down. I recall the, the chief told me there was no sign of a struggle uh, inside. The, it happened in the, in the garage, uh, which incidentally is also somewhat consistent with, with suicide. You know, often, the, often the person will take their life in some place that is not going to be as, make it as hard on the, whoever finds him. No fingerprints on a shotgun? That doesn't seem odd? I, I guess kind of yes and no. I mean, you know, fingerprint stuff is, is not a, contrary to what you see on TV, uh, people don't always leave prints, certainly you would think that uh, his would be on there, but I don't recall hearing anybody say that there were any stranger fingerprints on the, on the shotgun. And, and I will say this too, uh, uh, at that time, of course, newspaper competition in Texas was uh, more vigorous than it is today. And so when I was there in Palestine, I was up against reporters from both Dallas papers. Houston had two newspapers at the time. Of course, the Palestine paper was covering it, and also the Tyler 
newspaper was covering it. So, uh, but that, that's six different newspapers other than the American Statesman who were covering it. You know, if you look at the stories, they're all they're all pretty consistent that most of the evidence would, would point to a suicide. A sixth grader across the street at the school said they saw long-haired man at uh, Robinson's house in a van? I never heard that at the time, and I, I, it, it's not in any of my stories. I'm not saying it couldn't happen, but uh, uh, if that if that was the case, I didn't uh, I didn't mention it, and Barry did not mention it. He was real forthcoming. You know, I, I mean, he let me he let me walk around there in the garage, and, and uh, you know, unlike police today, who were generally far less chatty about a about a case, he was. Uh, he was happy to talk to the to the media, and I never really got any kind of vibe that uh, you know he wasn't telling me the full story. Do you consider it outside the realm of possibility that this could have been a uh, a murder? Well, you know anything's possible, of course, uh, but a lot of people were were looking at it. Uh, I put a lot of faith in the fact that that jury, uh, coroner's jury, which did have blacks on it. Concluded that it was a suicide, and I, I found one of my, I found some notes here. I talked to, I talked to a pathologist, <laughs> and it says, uh, written on the top of it is off the record. Uh, it's a, it's a typewritten note. But just reading the note here, he says, uh, let's read what it says. Uh, Medically speaking, suicide. No powder burns. No powder burns hand. No fingerprints on gun, and lack of blood. Now, he did say all those things. He was found lying on his back. Pellets had entered uh, between his eyes and took the top of his head off. Uh, quote, standing up inconsistent with suicide, comma, sitting in, felt guy, sat down, comma, and then it just says left side of knee. Uh, I, I think I remember that that means that, he, that the doctor felt that the shotgun had been on the left side of his knee. And then it says, shot himself sitting down. He just says, angles, comma, as far as concerned, medically consistent with suicide. He said, I'm the only pathologist around here. Uh, it says, the butt, of, butt gun on the floor. All medical evidence pointed to suicide. That guy was Dr. Jack Pruitt, P-R-U-I-T-T. But, you know, conspiracies happen, and I, you know, it, Suppose anything anything under the sun can happen, but just like they say about the Kennedy assassination conspiracy theories, that it would have taken the complicity of an awful lot of people uh, you know, to pull off that kind of conspiracy. I always try to keep a, an open mind, and, and frankly, you know, I'm sure that well, I, know, I know that speaking for myself, and I imagine I'm speaking for the other reporters. Uh, who covered this story, uh, we would have, you know, loved to have found out that it was a murder. You know, mm -hmm. that, that would have made it a much, a much bigger, a much bigger story. If you read my, my stories carefully, there, there's a, certainly didn't hesitate to point out anything that uh, might make it look like a murder. So, you know, it's, uh, uh, I'm just saying on, on balance, having done all that, and, uh, you know, I, I, I do wait for Suicide. It makes sense that Mike Cox, like most other police beat reporters, 
would see the world through the lens that the police provide, that Frank J. Robinson was a suicide, and it makes sense that Dorothy would refuse to ever believe that her husband died by his own hand, that he was a murder victim, a victim of a political assassination. What's interesting to me is how much weight is assigned to different pieces of evidence, or even making something, almost anything, into evidence. For example, the fact that Frank wasn't wearing his glasses when he died. They were found neatly folded on a countertop. But does that mean that Frank was killed or that he killed himself? There was no suicide note. Is that evidence of anything? Evidence of what? How much attention do we give that? How much weight do we assign to that fact and then place it on the scale of justice? Or does it even make it onto that scale? There were at least seven boys who heard four shotgun blasts coming from the Robinson house. Some minor details don't match, but they all agree on the main points. Several of the boys saw strange men and a white van leave the house. But that multiple corroborated eyewitness testimony is not evidence, it's discounted, it's brushed aside, it got no weight. Why didn't it get weight and why wasn't it placed on the scale? With the eyeglasses, that has weight, that's proof. And the shotgun blast, that's not evidence of anything. Just file it under, sometimes people do weird things before taking their own life. Who decides what evidence gets weight and what doesn't? And how do we guard against bias in that process? Mike Cox was quick to point out that Dorothy Robinson had a bias because of her connection to Frank. Well, what about the bias of the police and the bias of the entire city of Palestine? I don't know what happened to Frank J. Robinson, but it does seem clear that there was evidence that points away from suicide, but it was inconvenient, so it wasn't given the weight the weight of evidence. This is The Ghost of Frank J. Robinson. I'm David Martin Davies. The next episode, A Questionable Death, comes in two weeks. Thanks for listening. Support for TPR comes from Texas A&M San Antonio, offering a world-renowned education at one of the lowest tuition rates in the state of Texas. Up to 98% of students receive financial aid. Application at becomeajaguar.com.